You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy. We are kind of taking today as an opportunity to kind of harken back to some of our previous episodes, and it's been a while since we've really talked about really some of the underlying drives of how we perform and improve as psychotherapists. And a lot of this is also the basis towards our Therapy Reimagined conference that we're going to be holding later this year. But today we really wanted to focus on deliberate practice. And this is probably going to spill over into another episode because I think that there's so much that we want to talk about and that we really want to share as ways that we can better ourselves going forward. You're really good at this deliberate practice, Kurt. Thank you. Because you deliberately wanted to do this while I have laryngitis. Thanks, thanks, dude. I figured that this was just an opportunity of something that I could talk on and on and on about, and you wouldn't <laughs> necessarily have to add a whole lot to the show in case that you had a coughing fit or something like that. You're so funny. So what is, what is deliberate practice? So the operational definition that we really, in our hero, Scott Miller, actually harkens back to a landmark study in the area of expertise by Anders Ericsson and a couple of his colleagues. And they defined it as the individualized training activities specially designed by a coach to improve specific aspects of an individual's performance through repetition and successive refinement. That sounds really fancy. It does sound really fancy. So boiling it down even more simply, what this means is that you have somebody who's better than you challenge you in specific ways and make you practice them to do it better. I think that's good. And I just want to call out that you said it was a coach. So we, we might need coaches to be helping us out with being better therapists. I'm just saying. Well, and this is where the area of expertise, Erickson was not specifically talking about therapists. And that's where Scott Miller actually came into the field was he was the first researcher to actually apply this to psychotherapeutic outcomes. But this really does come from that as therapists, and I've said this before, that therapists on average tend to look at themselves as being better than the average therapist. We base this on really false data. And I've worked with a number of therapists from either people that I'm supervising, and I'm probably guilty of this quite a bit too. Oh, I'm sure you are, Kurt. We tend to look at our successes based on really qualitative data, not necessarily quantitative data of things like, well, our clients tell us that they like us or our clients keep coming back to us. So that must mean that we're doing good things. When in fact, we may just be having a dependent relationship that clients have on us that they don't feel the ability to speak out against us or to ask for better therapy from us. And we don't necessarily seek that information out. Yeah. I mean, even more than qualitative, it sounds like it's subjective, not necessarily really an objective assessment of how we're doing because people will tell us that they love us because they want to be in relationship with us. That's hard to get around. So how do you figure out how well you're doing? How do you know if you're doing good work with your clients? There's a number of different areas and without making today's episode necessarily just about outcome measures and 
I'd be very, very happy to spend several episodes even just going into that. But we look at both client feedback and the reduction of issues that clients have with their initial presenting issues. Really, especially in outpatient type settings, what we're looking for is that clients feel that therapy is working for them and that they're actually experiencing some sort of symptom relief. And you can get into all sorts of theoretical ideas of what symptom relief means. And I'm just going to say, let's get over it for the purposes of this episode and say that therapy works because clients are feeling that therapy works and there's actual evidence that therapy is working for them. That they feel better. Pretty much. For deliberate practice as far as things that we can do, and this is really under that guise of improving your specific performance, is if we already are successful in treating clients, if our clients are actually reporting to us that they are experiencing these symptom reductions, that they are achieving their goals, that they're happy with what therapy is providing for them, then we can't just look at our successes, that we need to focus more of what we're doing on the cases that we're not providing that for. And this is where there's tons of literature throughout the history of therapy on things like countertransference or stuck cases. Mm-hmm. But, but it's really being able to identify why those cases aren't working. For us to improve as therapists, we need to ensure that we're not just absolutely working with clients that were already primed to work well with us in the first place. But if we're going to be better all-around therapists, we need to be able to work with a wider variety of clients. Well, I think the piece that we're talking about, because I do believe that we want to work with the clients we work with best, but I think to improve, because not everybody within our target or niche are going to be exactly the same. And so when you're talking about looking at a stuck case, it's looking at what can I do better? And what I see oftentimes are people are really looking at what's wrong with the client. Is there resistance? Are they defensive? Like a lot of times people will blame the client versus look at what can I do better? So separate from that, because I think, you know, it's, it's a mindset saying, I'm going to take charge of how I view my treatment and I'm going to look at my piece. But if you're stuck with a case, what are the things that you can do to assess how you can get better? What are the things that you need to do with your stuck cases? So I think that you're bringing up several good points. And a big part of this is that we have to be aware that our blind spots are there and what's in those blind spots. What's happening in the therapy room is really just a single educated person, might be two educated people, depending on which client that you're working with. But I'm going to assume that you're educated in the room if you're listening to this podcast and worried about this kind of improvement. Just being aware that blind spots exist isn't enough, that you have to be aware of what's in that blind spot. And while this is happening in real time with a client, we're not really able to pick up on what we're missing. And so this really harkens back to the issues that we do in grad school and usually in our early trainings and supervision of recording our sessions so that way we're able to go back and review them later. This now sounds like, oh, I have to commit more time to actually looking at myself and it's kind of embarrassing that I'm going to make mistakes and I need to improve that. But really in looking back at yourself in those times helps you to form better ideas of what you're missing and be able to better pick those up in times that you're looking for them. I get that that you get to look at yourself, but I, I get worried that my clients don't want to be recorded. I, I find a lot of reasons why it would be too hard to do. What are the benefits of recording the session? Like, why would we want to do it? 
So I'm not even actually going to talk about sessions first on this, but I edit at least the first pass through of each of our episodes of this show. And by hearing our voices over and over again and being able to go through and pick out all of the different aspects of our episode that we just edited, I have learned how to better speak my words. I've been able to take out a lot of the ums and the you knows that I throw in because I don't want to edit those out later. So I'm a lot more careful about what I choose to say during each of the episodes as we're recording them. It makes for me to sound better and it makes it easier for me to edit on the back end once the recording's done. So this practice, this looking at what I'm doing during each of the episodes really helps to make the overall process better. And the same thing can happen during our therapy sessions. This is something where, yes, you do have to accommodate what the client's desires and wishes are. You probably want to have some sort of consent to have happen. Mm -hmm. But I think that if you frame it in a way to a lot of clients that this is used for my training purposes, this is used for me to better evaluate how I can improve to help you, that clients will initially maybe have a little bit of a struggle with it. But as they see the improvements with you, then a lot of clients will actually buy into this. Mm, I see. I mean, I think if it's clearly quality improvement and that it's in their best interest, I think they could get their head around it. But I think there's also a lot of clients that just may not want to. But I think if you can get enough of it, it sounds like that would be something that could be very helpful for how you operate, just getting enough of a sense of how you work. Right. And this is why we call this deliberate practice is because you have to deliberately go out of your way in order to evaluate yourself. Getting the client buy-in is really more of a benefit to them because if you can tell them, I'm going to improve so you can improve, then most clients would actually prefer that. I guess that makes sense. I, I guess the piece that I'm looking at is in introducing deliberate practice, and obviously you would probably talk about it differently with the client, it really makes it about you in some ways. Granted, it is for the benefit of the client, but it's saying like, hey, I'm going to do this so I can improve and our treatment can be better, but it brings you into the room in a different way. How do you address that? Initially, this is something where, yeah, you're going to be aware that a camera or a recording device is going to influence what you're doing. And I've been the supervisor who's asked several of my supervisees to record sessions throughout the years. And there's definitely the first 10 or 15 minutes where everybody's kind of putting on this fake voice and trying to show the best version of the therapist that they are. And I, as a supervisor, largely ignore that and handicap that as trying to overtry. But it becomes more natural when you stop being aware of what's happening there. And that's when the real window into where people's learning thresholds is, is when they stop looking at what they're doing. And so in the theme of deliberate practice, we want people to continue to look at what they are doing. And by bringing that focus in and that continued focus throughout sessions, we're better able to see where those windows are. I guess that makes sense. I, I was more talking about when you're actively talking with your clients about your own improvement, you're putting another layer of who you are into the room. And I think that would be something that the, then the client becomes aware of you as someone who is still learning and growing. And I think that in some ways talks about like the whole person therapist, like we talk about, but it, it puts a little bit of responsibility on the client to help with your improvement. And so I get a little bit worried, but I, what I'm hearing is 
potentially it's kind of desensitizing to the process of there's a camera here or I'm doing this and then just goes back to being normal treatment. But I think some clients might feel resentful that like, hey, you're, you're using me as a guinea pig to get better. The evidence of improving therapists shows that the average therapist tends to peak somewhere between about 80 and 100 hours of clinical experience. Not post-licensure, not the next 80 or 100 hours, but most therapists peak at their effectiveness within about the first two months of their trainee site during grad school. And a large part of this is because the active learning stops because we end up developing habits that we don't want to continue to look at. And in the practice of therapy, and this is the way that I've described it to clients before, but this is a practice. This is something where I need to continue to practice outside of the therapy room so that when I'm actually in the therapy room, when I'm doing therapy, that I'm no longer practicing therapy with you, that the practice needs to come in between the sessions. And it would actually be really, really scary if we were going to any sort of other health provider whose skills peaked 15, 20, 30 years ago, and they never continued to focus on improving themselves. Why should therapy be any different? That as we learn new skills, as we come across new biases in our life, that we have things going on in our life that are going to affect what's going on in the therapy session, that we should see improvement in ourselves by looking at that on a continual basis rather than pretending that we have reached a level of expertise and never challenging ourselves to get better, no matter where in your career that you are. I agree with that. I just, I guess I'm trying to talk about navigating the relationship with the client around this. I think that this is something that we have built upon or that really is looking further into our ideas of the whole person therapist is that we are continuing to grow. And this has the basis in a number of other theories. This is Yellum's journey together sort of idea that I don't want to seek out a therapist who thinks that they know everything and that they don't need to continue to improve. I want somebody who's going to run into windows of growth opportunities and that they're going to do something about it when that's brought to their attention. Okay. But you're also a therapist. I think there's a lot of clients who want us to appear as the expert that knows what we're doing and just help them to feel better. And so if you have a client that wants you to be the expert, doesn't want to see your ability to grow and get better, but really just wants you to be good, what do you do with that? I think that, and and the research supports this on effective psychotherapy, is that getting through that conversation with clients is actually more of a key to improving the outcomes than actually just hiding behind that expert label. Most experts in most fields are going to agree that they don't know everything and are going to actually admit to more of what they don't know than what they do know. And this is where you have to balance kind of a defensiveness of yourself and a protection for your client and that defensiveness that you're talking about in coming out with clients in the sense that I will do what I'm an expert at to the best of my expert ability in doing that. And I will also be very aware of the expertise or the lack thereof of any expertise in other areas that I don't know. I've found that some of the best growth opportunities for my clients is when I'm sitting in a session and they ask me a direct question or for direct advice. And my response to them is, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. 
let's work on this together. And it's that human aspect of even though I am probably pretty good and I'm, I'm going to hang on probably because I don't want to accuse myself of being any better than I actually am, but I'm probably pretty good with most of my clients, not all of them. And the ones that I'm able to be more human with are the ones that do tend to see the best improvements more quickly because it also gives them a permission to be flawed. I worry that that's not culturally sensitive, Kurt. (laughs) I think that it's a conversation that you need to have with each and every client who's bringing it up. And while people may be seeking out experts for certain things, whether it's a specific orientation or a specific treatment style of being able to do things, that the deliberate practice really does come around being able to evaluate where those issues arise from. And with clients who are asking for an expert, you do need to evaluate how much of this is culturally relevant, how much of it is just within the room relevant, and how much of it actually does apply to you. And these are things that we can't do in real time. These are things that we do need to be able to take that step back from and to be able to evaluate in a broader sense. And in a more simple way, sometimes you can just push it into the conversation as the way that I'm becoming an expert and more of an expert is by continuing to refine and evaluate my techniques. I like that because I think for me, when I've seen somebody who's able to hold their expert status while also saying when they don't know, when they're able to to do those things that say, hey, I'm going to take this in and I'm going to look at what else I can do, I think that actually builds my confidence. I think when people are like, oh, I don't know, and I got to get better. Like, I think if it's too all over the place, I think that's a problem. But I think when you're able to ground yourself in what you do know, and then talk about the deliberate steps you're taking to get better and to continue to, to grow and improve, I think that does work. So I see what you're saying. I think but you're hitting, you're hitting the exact point is that there's kind of the two groups of therapists that you just described to a perfect T. There's the ones who say, I don't know, and then do something about it. And there's the ones who kind of do the, oh, I guess I guess I just have that window. I guess that's something. The the difference between the two is the the first group improves. They they deliberately practice. And that's the point of this episode is that it's not just part A of admitting what you don't know, it's also part B of doing something about it. Yes. Yeah. So when you identify what you don't know. Or maybe let's figure out how do you identify what you don't know and then what do you do about it? So again, the best way is you need to have some sort of mechanism that helps you evaluate those opportunities that you are missing. And some of this and probably the best is when clients actually tell you, hey, you're missing out on something here or I don't like how you're responding to this. And it's getting over that initial defensiveness and that initial protection of your own ego that you need to be able to hear what your client's saying and being able to evaluate, is this something that I'm bringing into the room that's hampering my client's ability to improve? Now, for the things that clients aren't wonderfully telling us, hey, you need to improve on this, these are the things that we need to be able to then have somebody, and this goes back to that original working definition that we're talking about, Somebody who's better than us, help us evaluate those windows. And this is the continued supervision that we need to experience throughout the rest of our careers. 
I think that there's a lot of us, and this was partially me too, is once we got licensed, that burden of having to go to weekly clinical supervision, that's gone. But that's also probably the time where we actually do need continued support and continued to be pushed to grow. Even though we're licensed and we can technically practice independently, in order for us to continue to improve, we need people to continue to push us to get better. And yeah. when it comes to those clinical skills, it's generally people who have better clinical skills than us that can point out to us, hey, you're missing this with your client. Hey, that did you see that reaction on the video that you got from the client, however fleeting it might be, that you're now able to be more aware of in your next session, or you're better able to evaluate what led to that reaction so you can either recreate it if it's positive or not make the same steps in order to make that mistake in in a future session. So really looking to find the people who can help you continue to grow, continue to learn. And for me, I know that sometimes it's tough to figure out who, who those people are and how to find those people. What have you done to find those people to continue your deliberate practice? This came up in our specialization and certification episode when I was talking about the training and my path towards becoming certified in EMDR. And one of the things that came up in one of my most recent EMDR consultation sessions, this is with somebody who has been with me in my training journey from the very beginning of EMDR. I've done a lot of hours of consultation with him. And during our last session, I specifically asked him, I'm like, I have another 10 or so hours until I get my actual certification. I am asking for more challenges during our consultation session of how I'm evaluating clients or other learning opportunities because I am feeling like I'm just kind of spending my time in these consultation sessions just doing the same thing that I was doing several sessions ago. I don't feel like I'm continuing to push myself and continuing to grow. It's a long-term relationship that I have with somebody that I have the trust to be able to ask him and bring a very positive critique of where I feel that my learning needs to happen. And this isn't necessarily without trial and error, that there are people who are probably very fantastic leaders in their respective professions, but aren't necessarily good teachers or good supervisors in being able to evaluate that. So you do need to develop those long-term relationships and that trust, but this is also the benefit of working within long-term relationships is that people who can see your growth and development are the best ones to be able to continue to challenge and continue to see where you need to go and where your best growth areas are going forward. So in order to find them, it might be seeking out paid supervision or paid consultation, even if it's not required. Because for you to get the expert experience or the more experienced therapist to help you continue to develop yourself, then you're going to get better, more positive feedback. You're going to better evaluate the areas where you're defensive or be able to look into those blind spots from a different viewpoint. So it's being really proactive to find the people who can have, at least if you haven't already developed the relationship, that they have a strong knowledge base or someone you've worked with before who can continue to watch your areas of growth and can have some history with you to identify where you may need to go and the blind spots that you've had in the past so that they can really give you good feedback. 
Right. And it's somebody who can evaluate that the skills that you need are appropriate to where your learning edge is. I can go to an NBA basketball coach and ask them for better coaching because there's somebody who really knows basketball. But if they're not able to evaluate that I'm a mid-30s suburban dad who hasn't picked up a basketball in several years, the skills that they're used to challenging people with are way beyond the ability of where my learning window is. So I may need to seek out somebody who's good for somebody at my particular skill level in my particular career. But if I'm going through the same basketball drills that a professional basketball player is, I might see some improvement, but those are going to be way too difficult for what I actually do need to improve as far as some of the basics go. Having this trust also needs to be intentional in that it's somebody who can actually help me at the specific level that I'm at. I hadn't thought about that. I, I mean, it's it makes sense. You know, you want to make sure that somebody's going to teach you where you're at. But I think there's there's definitely folks who would want to go for the the MBA coach and get the best person and not necessarily the best person for you. So I think that that's smart. And learning theory really supports this, that we need to be challenged at the level that we're at. On the other end of this, I could play 10,000 hours and 10,000 hours if genuine deliberate practice is considered to be the level where you're considered an expert, but I can spend 10,000 hours playing basketball against a bunch of eight-year-olds. That's not necessarily going to improve what my skill level is either, even though I have put in the time that you need to be able to target the right window of where you're learning in order to be able to better improve. I might get some improvement from that NBA coach, but if I still can't dribble a basketball or even tie my shoes correctly in order to prevent blisters, then I'm not going to get as good as I could become because I'm going to be overworked in areas where I might not have those skills or ever be able to have the basics to get to those skills. So in the therapy world, what this might mean is that there are supervisors who really honestly, we've talked about this in our supervision episode, but there are supervisors who probably shouldn't be supervising. And those are people who you might run into, you might be assigned to in an agency or a school setting that don't actively challenge you to continue to grow. They don't challenge you to think in different ways. They're just more or less there to sign off your hours. There are really advanced supervisors who forget that the first 15, 20 hours that you're going to be focused more on how do I set up the room? Where does the Kleenex box go? How do I answer the door? That you need to be challenged at the appropriate level of where you are in your career. That if you're in grad school right now and you're listening to this, then your deliberate practice is going to be a lot more of reflecting with your supervisors on the things that you don't know. might be grounding more in a specific theory or with a specific intervention. If you're further advanced in your career, you might be working with a trusted colleague to look at why a long-term client seems to be stalling out. And it might be very subtle interpersonal things going on in the room that you're just missing out on. So this is where you do need to seek out that trusted long-term relationship of somebody that you can continue to work with who can continue to see what your next steps are going to be as well and to be able to trustfully work with you on those growth edges 
after they're identified so that way you can refine your skills and be able to continue to practice that. One thing that I'm hearing though is that it may end up being something where you outgrow a supervisor depending on your skill level. Is that Have you found that? Because I think certainly as a supervisor grows or as a consultant grows, they're going to continue to grow as well. But I, I think when you're talking about finding the person for where you're at, at some point, you may outgrow them. Is that right? Definitely. This is where, and just like if you're a fantastic therapist who recognizes that you can no longer help a client because your clinical skills are up, a good supervisor or a good consultant should admit those same things. And you should have enough trust in them that you're able to have that discussion with them before you even reach that final place where neither of you are really feeling that things are being helped out. Post-licensure, this is a lot easier because you can have several consultants to be able to help you in a number of different areas. You're not tied to some sort of Star Wars master-apprentice sort of relationship that you can actually learn from a number of different people and be able to practice that. But what I do suggest in that sort of situation is that you do it intentionally to grow completely and that you're not just putting yourself in a situation where you're going to bounce from one theory to another and clients are going to get confused based on what sort of treatments you're doing from week one to week four because it's something that's completely different. That makes sense. And I think the the piece that I want to to kind of close up with is that part of this is also having deliberate conversations with your clients about your role in in becoming the best therapist you can be with your consultants or with your supervisors, making sure that the space is open for everyone to really talk about the process so that there can be an openness to say, hey, this isn't working anymore. Hey, something isn't right. This isn't working for me. That's not working for you. There's these growth edges. It's, It's opening that conversation. And so it's really being open to those discussions and actually consciously setting the stage for those things to happen. You got it. We will post a couple of the references in our show notes for today's episode. It's really kind of fascinating reading, but it's also psychology research and outcome research that it's not generally your super easy reads all the time. But if this is something that definitely interests you, I do encourage you to go back to Anders Ericsson's original research and some of the follow-up books that have really built upon that as it applies to psychotherapy. If you're a therapist and you do want to continue to expand on this conversation, we do encourage you to join our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist Survival Guide Facebook group. Look into that, answer a couple of questions for us, and we'll let you in and we'll build on some of these conversations in that group as well. Check out our website and other social media, mtsgpodcast.com, and check out our live events that are coming up this year where we will continue to dive into these theories of deliberate practice and why it benefits both you and your clients. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. 